The scripture lesson for this morning is from the second chapter of John. Listen for the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with some water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O fill me with thy fullness, Lord, until my very heart overflow in kindling thought and glowing word, thy love to tell, thy praise to show. Amen. So somehow the wedding feast at Cana is one of those stories that I remember from my childhood and teenage years in the Presbyterian church, though perhaps I remember them for reasons that that are a little more perverse than mature. I always enjoyed the mischief of pointing out to Christians who equated faith with teetotaling that the first miracle Jesus performed in the Bible involved winemaking. Along these lines, a member of the church this week sent to Patrick, who forwarded it to me, a comment that since Jesus makes more wine than is necessary and of a quality higher than most hosts serve, he must have been an Episcopalian. We've been going through a youth renovation task force the past several years, looking at our youth ministry. Since Jesus doesn't immediately in this passage respond to his mother's suggestion that he solve the problem of insufficient wine, teenagers who prefer not to take all of their parents' advice can can draw great strength and comfort and inspiration and relevance from this story. And finally, since Jesus appears to be against turning water into wine, 
before he is for turning water into wine, readers in our country might be tempted to label Jesus as what? Very good, a flip-flopper. But all lightheartedness and cynicism aside, this is not a story about abstaining from or having permission to consume wine. It's not a story about obeying or disobeying parents. It's not a story about consistency of voting record or campaign promises. Rather, this is a story about identity, timing, and abundance. So first, identity. For over 200 years, people in predominantly Christian churches in the West have wrestled with what we commonly call the miracles of Jesus. His acts of turning water into wine in our story, of healing the sick, of raising the dead, of feats overcoming nature, such as walking on water and stilling the storm. People who want to believe in God and follow Jesus are sometimes hindered by these incidents that seem to transcend the laws of nature. When we have difficulty believing them, we sometimes wonder if the doubts we harbor disqualify us from being Christian or from believing in God. Wrestling with these miracles, some people leave or don't embrace the faith. Others try to say that one can be faithful without having to believe these miracles literally. Still, others try to show that for each miracle, there is a valid scientific explanation, thus reconciling their faith with their understanding of science, but perhaps removing elements of mystery and trust that are actually at the heart of faith. But the truth is, in this and in so many other miracle stories in the Bible, Jesus takes great steps to resist or overcome our human tendency to believe that he is the Son of God simply because he performed miracles. Jesus did not want to be followed as a miracle worker or a magician. In John's Gospel, in which this story appears... Jesus refers to these deeds not as miracles, but as signs. Signs are actions that reveal the presence and glory of God in the world. For Jesus, God's presence and glory are involved with his entire identity and experience, not just in his miraculous deeds. Christ's presence and identity are known through his pre-existence with God prior to creation, through his involvement with God in creation as word, through whom all things came into being, and without whom not one thing came into being. Christ's presence and glory are known through his gift of turning water into wine and restoring people to life. They are known through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his gift of the Spirit, and his promised return. In John's Gospel, sometimes people see his signs and are moved to believe. 
Sometimes Jesus cautions them not to believe simply because they have seen him do something out of the ordinary. But always he points them to belief that involves giving themselves over to his entire person and identity as word made flesh. For us to follow Christ because he performs miracles or to refuse to follow him because he is said to perform them is to miss the point. Following Jesus, having faith in Christ, calling oneself Christian means experiencing and assenting to Christ as God's presence and glory in the world at Christmas and at Easter. On Good Friday and at Pentecost, in ordinary time and in not-so-ordinary time. Turning water into wine is simply one manifestation of Christ's identity and presence as God with us, as God dwelling among us, as Word made flesh. So if this story is first about identity... It is also about timing. My hour has not yet come, Jesus says, in response to his mother's suggestion that he do something within his power about this wine that is running out. My hour has not yet come. Christ stakes this claim, makes this assertion, rebuffs his mother's suggestion. But then he turns right around and turns water into wine. It is as if he is acknowledging that his hour has something to do with such power. But his limited and specific exercise of that power at this particular wedding feast does not mean that his hour has fully come. You see, for Jesus, his hour is the hour of his glorification. And in John's gospel, his glorification involves his death, resurrection, and ascension, all intermingled as one. In John, it is when Christ is lifted up in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension. It is when he is lifted up that his hour has come. Now what specifically does this mean for us or can it mean for us? With the caveat that we are neither divine nor as holy as Christ is, it means among other things that not everything intended in our lives is intended to happen now. If there is an hour for Jesus to come into his identity and glory, and that hour is his death and resurrection and ascension, all other times in his life prepare for that hour. His hour is sacred, and it is specific. He does not determine it. He does not control it. But when he arrives... He embraces it and lives into it. The same is true for us 
There is a time when we fully embody who we are, who we are intended to be. When we come into our hour in God. It may be early in our life. It may be in the middle years of our life. It may be in the last moments of our life. But we cannot rush our hour. We can only be attuned to its coming. Pray for its arrival. Pray for the ability to recognize it. And then when it arrives, give ourselves over to it. If we do this, we will not only live into the hour that God has for us, but we will do so in the appropriate time that God has determined for us. And we will then know the blessing of good timing. Some of you know that I first met my wife Maggie in 1980 in, of course, the Presbyterian Church. We did not marry until 2006, with other marriages and children in between. She was a Presbyterian child from El Paso, who went to a Presbyterian college in San Antonio. I was a Presbyterian child from Memphis, who considered her Presbyterian college in El Paso, but ended out going somewhere else. Sometimes we say to one another, wistfully, gee, what if I had gone to Trinity and we had met when we were 18? How much different life would be? But then she says, well, you wouldn't have thought that I was attractive enough. (laughs) And I say, well, you wouldn't have liked my politics or you wouldn't have liked my theology. On and on and on. But in all seriousness, we have a sense that the timing then wouldn't have been right. The timing of even something as personal as the deepest of human love rests not with us, but with God. But at whatever point our hour comes... And whatever our hour consists of, if we are ready for it, if we recognize it, if we give ourselves over to it, then we know the blessing of good timing. And third, this story is about abundance. Notice the details that John provides in this story. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, filled to the brim, 150 to 180 gallons of wine, and wine of the highest quality. All of that comes from John's narrative of this. It is abundance, absolute abundance, in an out-of-the-way village in a place called Cana. It is absolute abundance. 
Many years ago, I encountered a poem called Nikki Rosa by the African-American poet Nikki Giovanni. It speaks to abundance, to absolute abundance, to jars that are filled to the brim, even when those of us on the outside looking in might see only emptiness. Childhood remembrances are always a drag, she writes, if you're black. You always remember things like living in Woodlawn with no inside toilet. Or if you become famous or something, they never talk about how happy you were to have your mother all to yourself. And how good the water felt when you got your bath from one of those big tubs that folk in Chicago barbecue in. And somehow when you talk about home, it never gets across how much you understood their feelings as the whole family attended meetings about Hollydale. And even though you remember, your biographers never understand your father's pain as he sells his stock and another dream goes. And though you're poor, it isn't poverty that concerns you. And though they fought a lot, it isn't your father's drinking that makes any difference, but only that everybody is together. And you and your sister have happy birthdays and very good Christmases. And I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me because they never understand black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while, I was quite happy. I know that in our lives, no matter how privileged we are, we are sometimes sad, often sad, some even constantly sad. I know we are lonely. I know we are fearful. I know we are angry. I know we are anxious. I know that we suffer. There are no inside toilets. Our parents fight. Dad drinks too much. I know all that. But I also know 150 gallons of wine filled to the brim, the highest quality, the glory and the presence of God with us.
abundance. Absolute abundance. Abundance. 